0: In this series on the work of the church, uh, evangelism, I guess it's been four weeks ago, exaltation and then edification last week. I'm thankful for the focus. I'm thankful for the, the effort that the other elders brought to that series. And I hope that if you missed any of those, that you'll make time to listen to those messages. Review the notes. The, I can tell you their PowerPoint slides are superior to the ones you'll see today. But our goal in, those, in this series is to discuss some things in our church that may not regularly come up as we go through a book of the Bible or in the course of our expository preaching. But we felt like it was a good, a providentially provided time to review some of our core beliefs and practices. I hope it's been beneficial to all of us. I hope that if you have questions or comments or things that resonate in your heart, that you'll share them with others. If you want to talk to the elders about it, that would be our joy as well. But we've talked about how we evangelize, how we exalt God through our worship services, how we edify one another in discipleship. We've seen scriptural support for why we should do these things as a church body, as a group of called out, called together believers in this place. But let me ask you. Why should we do these things? We saw what the Bible says about those items evangelism exaltation edification but why should we do those things obviously those messages talked about the commands of scripture but then why do we continue to struggle at times to do the work of the church how can we minister as a church and as members of the church how can we minister and work and labor together in a way that obeys scripture honors god and also fills us with joy I don't believe anyone here believes that we are to undertake the work of the church with drudgery, begrudgingly, like just get through it and suffer through it. I don't think God wants us to do that either. And so providentially, I want to address these questions about why we continue to struggle, perhaps at times or. If I take it more objectively, what should our heart for ministry be? What should our motivation be? So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. After I pray, we will read a few verses and we'll stay in 1 Corinthians 12 for a good part of the message. Um, Before I pray, I want to sincerely and lovingly ask you to join me. I've also prayed that God will help us all. And and I'll frequently say we because this is something I am not speaking to you as someone who has arrived and am now sharing wisdom to you. I'm sharing with you things that I struggle with. There are potholes and pitfalls everywhere when we talk about doing the work of the church. Especially today when my goal will be in part to call us to action. I believe the scripture says that, but not just action in a obligatory way but acting in the right reasons. I am concerned that some might hear me and that I might hear myself as calling for legalistic motivation. Like, you've got to do this if you're a Christian. That, you know, if you don't do this, something bad will happen to you. You might hear me as piling on the guilt. Additional duties that I'm telling you about on top of what may already feel like overwhelming schedules and responsibilities. That is not my heart. While I want to speak to those who may be struggling with their own motivation for ministry, I realize there may be also others who may hear this message as a call to inaction. Like, um, if my motivation is supposed to be right, but I don't feel that way, then I must not be called to do anything as a believer. So my heart's desire and what I want to pray for is that each of us hears this message and looks at Scripture, perhaps with new eyes, But hear it however God wants you and I to hear it. Wherever we are, whatever we are struggling with, may God reveal His plan and His character for us. It's not up to me to convince you one way or another. I just want to lay out the Scripture before you and kind of speak from my heart. So let's pray together. Father, I do pray that You would allow our hearts to be open to be unblocked by any preemptive positions that we might have. This is a familiar passage, and we can tend to turn our brains off as we've heard this discussed in the past. But I pray that here in 2014, here at Grace and Truth Bible Church in Hillsboro, with these people, led by these elders, that you would meet us in our need, that you would rejuvenate those who may be ministering in a struggling way, that You would renew the joy for those who are already finding their satisfaction and their joy and their peace in, in ministering to others in the body and to unbelievers. Wherever we are, Father, I pray that we would set aside our, um, our presuppositions, our, our notions that we have coming into this, and that we would open our hearts and say, Change me, Father. Apply what we hear so that we might change and grow, that we might go forth and minister. I thank you in advance for how you will receive glory from whatever is said and done here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our text will be 12 through 14. Um, various verses throughout that passage. In these chapters, I want to point out five key principles for our edification, five key principles for our edification. I believe Paul has written a very clear, comprehensive, logical, well-stated treatise for us here that serve us well in our study of how should we engage in ministry as a church. So the first one is ministry gifts. This is, this is troublesome. If I take off my glasses so I can read this clearly, I can't see the back. So... Um, <laughs> Ministry gifts are given to the church by God in diversity and varying measure. That's going to be our first point, and we'll pick up in verse number four. Let's go to the next slide. Verse number four of chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The first thing to note is that ministry gifts are given to the church by God. By God. It's not of ourselves. The foundational part of this first principle is so important. All gifts to the church, all gifts to each of the members of the body of Christ. These gifts come from God. Now, in just realizing this, there's some immediate con- Immediate applications we can take there's no room for arrogance about the gifts that we may have been given individually. They're from God. They're not of ourselves. They're not things that we created. So there's no room for arrogance, although I I will admit that's one of the first sinful reactions we can have in the exercise of our gifts is to become proud of that which has been given to us. There's also. An application of since these come from God, we should be less condescending or critical to others who have different gifts. I'll speak more on this in a moment, but recognizing the source of the gifts is foundational to having a proper attitude towards other believers who have different gifts. This should be an antidote or preventive medicine against unhappiness with the other members of your local body of believers. Now, do you ever get frustrated without, with how others might do things differently? Do you ever get frustrated with how others might feel things differently or how they might say or emote things differently? How they might stand, how they might choose a font on a PowerPoint? Some of these are small irritations, some of them can be large irritations, frustrations, obstacles to fellowship. We recognize also that this passage says there's a diversity of gifts. I mean, Paul's going through this, and I don't believe this is a comprehensive list. I don't think it's the only list, and we're supposed to find in Hero or in Ephesians 4 and Romans uh, the, the list. But I think Paul's main point is that there's a diversity of gifts to the church. God gives them, God gives us a variety. There's a variety of gifts, of services, of activities, but it is the same God. Who has given them. Let me voice a note of concern. Even while we embrace perhaps our differences. And that's easy to do in our culture, right? Diversity is in the world's eyes actually more valuable than anything else. Embrace your differences. Be careful believers in the body with assigning yourself. I'll call it labels of identity. um, Whether you're free spirited I tried my best to come up with um, positive synonyms for those things which I am not. Free-spirited. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Free-spirited versus anal retentive, or as I just like to call (laughs) meticulous or careful. Um, Creative people versus those that might be more objective and factual. Emotional and reserved. Now, realize as I'm going through this, I don't know the spectrums. I know some of you know what the introvert is different than extrovert, but please You're proving my point. The labels of identity should not identify us overly so as believers. I mean, we live in an age where there's Facebook quizzes, there's there's BuzzFeed quizzes, personality tests. What kind of Avenger are you? What kind of color are you? We flock to these things. I know because I see it in my feed. You guys know what you are. Why why do we do this? Why do we want to identify ourselves? Some of it's just harmless fun. You know, no one, no one. I don't know who the weakest Avenger is, but uh, um, we all have our favorites and we, we want to be that way. In the body of Christ, I would say that our identity as a child of God, our identity as Christ followers transcends all. Let us not carve out. And create schisms where there should not be. Recognize the variety. And I'm speaking to myself. The way people communicate is different than the way I would at times. And I I need to see this is God's hand. This is not God's hand of, Tim, you're going to suffer by being with this person for the next ten years. No, this is God's hand saying, I have a purpose for this. God gives a variety of gifts. God also gives gifts in varying measures. Uh, we see in that last verse, in verse 11, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. We should not expect each believer to be equally proficient in every area of service. It is not profitable, and I speak to leaders of the church, it's not profitable to compare people in terms of their gifting, to start to see people as commodities, to be plugged into different holes. Um, we praise God for how he's brought our church to the point where we earnestly, and sincerely seek this church to be burdened and to be active in those areas where God has led the church body, not just the leadership. We want to be responsible with that. We don't want to see we have this vision and we're going to take person A. Okay, we need a couple, a young couple that's in their 20s. Who can we grab off the shelf and stick in? Who cares if they're called to this? We know what's best for them. That's not proper shepherding or leadership. And we as believers can sometimes get that attitude, too, that we we know what's best and we know this person actually should be a little stronger in their gifting. Instead of comparing people in terms of their gifting, we should encourage each other by noting the diversity and the distribution of the gifts with which God has gifted the church. Number two, second key message from this passage, ministry gifts are empowered by God in all members of the body. First of all, in Ephesians 4, 7 To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 6, I read, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit. Not only is God the source of the gift, God is the one who empowers these gifts, and God has given these gifts to all believers, to all members of the body of Christ. This literally means every believer, rich or poor, educated or non-educated, healthy or those who struggle with illness, married or single, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Jew or Greek, introvert or extrovert, carnivore or vegetarian, gluten-free or gluttonous, which is It's not the opposite, but there's something there. All believers have been gifted. Now, sometimes when you talk about spiritual gifts, personality traits can come into the conversation. And I don't mean to equate those terms, but I do think God can use our personalities in conjunction with the gifts that he's given. For example, an extroverted person might be able to evangelize in some ways differently than an introverted one. Um... There, this week, uh, Joseph and Mike and I had the opportunity and privilege to go to together for the gospel in Louisville, Kentucky. And the theme of the conference was evangelism, the unashamed gospel. And we, we heard teaching and we heard examples, and I think they were very accessible. And Joseph in his prayer talked about um, the opportunity that he and Mike had to witness to someone just on sitting there on the side of the sidewalk as we were rushing to lunch. Um, they stopped and, and, and spoke with this man for a number of, of minutes to, to ask him his story, to present the gospel to him, to try to minister to him, to pray with him. On the way home, Mike had a two-hour conversation. It's a four-hour flight from Detroit to Portland, and he had a captive audience. And um, they had told us in the conference this was opportunity to to witness, and it's the easiest entry because what do you do when you get on a plane? Are You going home or are you traveling for business? Where you been? Somebody asked Mike where he had been, and Mike said, "I was at a conference we called Together for the Gospel, hearing, preaching." It's just a natural entry point, um, and and the guy was prepared to hear. The gospel. He he had some real concerns about Christians in his past and how they have acted. He was a non. Uh, he definitely did not profess to be a Christian. Had some real issues. I believe Mike was able to speak to, and plant a seed. So extroverts might evangelize more, but a, a person who listens well, who empathizes, might be given the gift of discernment, thus making them a very effective counselor. There are ways that God can use our personalities. But recognize just. And I can't say this too much, that every Christian is unique. Not all Christians have the same giftedness, but all Christians have been gifted. And all Christians have been empowered by God for a purpose. So rather than comparing yourself to others who might be more or less gifted, recognize the gifts that God has given to you. When uh, Joseph came on as an elder... I I spoke in that members meeting. I talked about how his skills were complementary to the elder team, and that was just a providential um, uh, gift from God that he brought us someone who was not like us. The four of us, guys, we have some, uh, obviously we have an alignment in theology. We have an alignment in our belief of of how the church should be led, but we have very different personalities and skills. Um, On this trip, uh, besides the three of us, we met up with Everett Bobbeth and his father. And um, so it's kind of a group of five or six of us. And um, I, I was able to exercise a curse or a gift that I have. But the other guys embraced it in that I had been there before. And they said, you know, where should we go eat breakfast? Where should we eat lunch? And, and after, I didn't want to micromanage too much. I wanted to serve I genuinely just wanted to serve and go with the flow. But it became apparent to me and to them that if I was able to call ahead or go online and make a reservation for dinner, that we were all served better by not standing in line for an hour with the other 8,000 pastors who were there. And so it it got to the point where I didn't plan a meal, and the guys were like, where are we having dinner? And I'm like, I, I didn't plan anything. It They embraced that part of my gift, and I was able to compliment them, so they were able to just relax you know it it um it wasn't a hardship for me to to serve them in that way that's a that's a very small example, but I believe that's a one of the clear things that God has gifted me with administrative skills and if I can use that to serve other brothers and sisters in a way that is edifying in a way that is loving, God can be glorified. We need to keep from falling into pride, as I've mentioned. God, these gifts come from God. Recognize that those gifts come from God. Don't lose sight of that. We also need to keep from despair where we might feel like we're not useful. Recognize that God has gifted you. There's a T-shirt in my memory from the 80s. I think it's a kid's face and it said, God, don't make no junk. Does anybody, has anybody seen this? Is it from the 80s, 70s, 90s? It, Okay, it's bad grammar, but it's, it's true. God has gifted each of us. Recognize what that means. God has gifted you in some way for the benefit of this church body, if he's called you here. In that, we should find our identity. We are redeemed to salvation, but we are also destined to serve God and others in some indispensable way. Some indispensable way. And I can say that because of point number three, God has a design for the gifts he has given. Ministry gifts are designed by God to be used by interconnected members of the body. Not all Christians have the same giftedness. Not all Christians have the same level of gifts, even if they have the same gift. But all are designed by God for a specific purpose. If you look at verse number 12, we'll read from there. God means for those gifts to be part of a tapestry of believers within the body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, verse 12. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose Familiar passage, but as I prayed, let's let's look at it with new eyes. Let's set the, set aside any uh, you know, pre-existing um, structure that we might have had. We know that this passage says there are no indispensable parts of the body, but how do we apply that knowledge? Or actually, I should say, no dispensable parts, no no parts that are not important. Let's note some key things. First of all, the part, the the words that I emphasize. God arranged. God composed the members of the body. Um, I was flipping through channels this morning. And I saw an orchestra playing. I do not understand. I, I consider myself a, somewhat of a musician. I do not understand how people write music for orchestras. There's so many parts. You know, how do you know when it's time for a French horn to come in? How do you know when, you know, the the timpani should have, you know, hit five beats? God compose the members of the body and that word really really struck me he has a design for the body of the church and he is the great designer our gifts are not just random our gifts are, are to the church our ministry abilities are not randomly given to us god has a design for this church body number two i noticed god's priorities are different less honorable parts get greater honor weaker parts are considered indispensable um uh we can even see that as we consider this very appropriate motif of the body. I mean, no one likes. Boy, I want to be the spleen when I grow up. I, I wish I were a spleen. That's that's a. It, it's not as as glorious as. I don't know what what's another glorious part. The hand, the hand can do so much. But the spleen, if you ever have had um, issues with that part of your. I shouldn't have chosen a spleen because I'm not sure what it does. Um, <laughs> there's a problem about writing out the illustrations. I, if, you, if you have problems with your spleen, losing your spleen, you have infection issues. Thank you, Gussie. Um, it, is, it is indispensable. It receives less glory. Hopefully you never see your spleen, but it is indispensable. This example of the body is strong and appropriate, and as I, it's not just a motif that, that Paul put in there. The interconnectedness—I have two illustrations for that, both from my body. Um, Twenty years ago, perhaps I, I started having pain in my upper back, pain that would wake me up at night. Upper back, okay? Um, and it was—it was strange. It was to the point where it would—I could not sleep. I couldn't get comfortable, and then I would wake up, and it would be like nothing happened, no soreness. And I'm like, this is so strange. This happened for about six months, and I was a student, so I didn't have the best of medical care. I went to student health, and I'm not sure. But they they couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, the end of the story is gallstones, my gallbladder, which is down here on this side. But I had what is called referred pain, where the problem is here, but for some reason, my upper back, a band, is what hurt. Um... I checked with uh, Sarah before, I, before this message. There's other parts of the body. Um, she had a patient last week who was having a heart attack. Um, incredible pain in the underarms is, is how the heart attack was manifesting itself. The lady couldn't lower her arms because she was having a heart attack. There's referred pain. When one part of the body of Christ hurts, we feel it in other parts of the body, in a healthy body. I, I used to play basketball regularly, and as part of that um, is the common injury of ankle sprain. Um, if you sprain your ankle and then you're you're young enough not to be smart enough to take time off and not play anymore, you, you play with a limp. You walk with a limp. And then I realized my knee on that same leg was hurting badly, and I didn't injure my knee. But it's it's what medical community calls compensatory pain because I was walking incorrectly, and running incorrectly my knee couldn't take the strain of that and and i think that's just another clear picture about how we are intertwined uh, we are to be intertwined to the point where when one person is is, is weak the stronger parts of the body feel it and compensate uh, my father-in-law has had multiple bypass uh, surgeries um, on his heart, and I know, and so you learn through through people's trials. There's a thing called um, where where the there's blockage, and so the the body knows. I'm going to use these other blood vessels. What's that called? Um, it's not compensatory circulation, but it, it, it finds other paths to get the blood around. So even if you have like major blockage in a, in an artery or a part of your circulatory system, the body compensates. And that same designer, that that God who created the body to be such a marvelous Piece of work is the same one who designed our church body and our body of Christ to be intertwined. God's purpose is stated in, in verse number 25. God's purpose for this intertwined, composed, designed body is that there be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care. So that when one member suffers, all suffer. When one member is honored, all rejoice. I'll also point you to Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty four and twenty-five, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more. Our body parts are designed to strengthen each other, to strengthen each other's faith, to interact for the benefit of our health, to make up for deficiencies, whether they are temporary or whether they are in a fellow member who, who needs to, to be encouraged over a long term. In a similar manner, we stimulate one another, we encourage one another for the benefit of the body. This is God's design. In our unique gifting, in our unique levels of gifting, in our interconnectedness, please grasp this truth on this point that God has composed the body of Christ and specifically this body of believers for His glory. That, that's a huge truth that can, should fill you with like awe that, that God wants us to be intertwined. It fills, fills us with gratitude that we are not to walk alone through this world. We have people that God has providentially placed us with that we are to depend upon, that we are to strengthen, that we are to interconnect with. Paul continues in verse 31 of this chapter by listing some gifts. And then he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Look in chapter 12, verse 31, and flipping over to 13, uh, chapter 13. But he also says at the end of this chapter, let me show you still a more excellent way. And then he opens chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Brothers and sisters, if we evangelize without love, it is for naught. It is detrimental to the presentation of the gospel to present it without love. If we worship and exalt God without love, it is as sounding brass. It is useless. We cannot edify one another without love. Without love, it just becomes nitpicking, fixing one another's faults, probably for our own convenience, rather than bearing one another's burdens. Without love, we are nothing. The gospel does not exist without God's love. We cannot rightly share the truth of the Gospel, nor can we rightly call people to faith in God and repentance from sin without love. Without love, the Gospel message becomes merely dutiful obligation to a powerful God in an attempt to avoid eternal damnation in hell. If you leave out the fact that God loves us and He seeks to be reconciled to us and He sovereignly chose to redeem a people to be reconciled to That is because of love, and Paul states his case eloquently and comprehensively in chapter 13. He closes with faith, hope, and love; these three, but the greatest of these is love. In the study, I I kind of, you know, it kind of struck me that I've I've read chapter 13 so many times in isolation. I didn't see it in the structure of chapter 12 and chapter 14 and the the discussion of the gifts. It means so much more to understand that this is how we are to exercise our gifts, not just um, a love chapter in isolation. Paul brings it in that last phrase of chapter 12 where he says, let me show you a still more excellent way. I mean, you've you've seen the explanation in chapter 12 of how the bodies intertwined and how the gifts are to be used together to strengthen each other. But a more excellent way is to exercise them in love. Without love, we squander and we waste and twist and pervert the gifts that God has given to us. The fifth point, ministry gifts are only effective when the church is built up. And we'll turn over to chapter number 14. We will not read the whole chapter, but stick with me. I'm going to read 1 through 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. If he hasn't made his point enough, he goes on in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Earlier, I mentioned that recognizing that the source of our gifts are from God, recognizing that he composed and he designed the variety of gifts, he designed the distribution of the gifts, and his purpose for those gifts is unity. Recall that none of this leaves no room for arrogance. Exercising the gifts is not a self-centered sort of operation. Paul already said that in chapter twelve, but he's saying even more, hammering the point home in chapter fourteen. The gifts are only effective when they are exercised in a way that builds up the church, a way that edifies. The point is never merely the application of the gift, the use of the gift for the sake of the gift. It's not just about excellence in teaching because unbelievers speak well and teach well. It's not merely that we would seek to have someone who teaches well, but instead when that teaching edifies the body, then it is a gift from God. As he's saying in this passage, if you prophesy or if you speak in tongues only to build up yourself, it's useless to the church. It doesn't build up the church. It's like a weak, indistinct bugle, you know, a soldier saying, are we charging or are we retreating? Are we going into the battle? I'm not sure what that was that I heard. It is not building up of the church. As you look farther down the chapter, Paul continues to hammer this point home, and I think It really speaks to those of us who teach and preach. He says that speaking words in a spiritual tongue is something that he thanks God for, but he would rather speak five words that instruct others and build up the church than 10,000 words in a tongue that can't be understood. This just calls to mind, and I want to speak to the care we need to take in using spiritual jargon. Sometimes, and I'll speak from my experience, sometimes we can use terminology that that words that we know, uh, we 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 uh, Mike and I learned a new word this week, or at least understand it more. Antinomianism. Now, for some of you, you know that word well, um, but I would urge you if you are speaking to anybody, a group of believers, don't assume that people know this term. Um, it means anti-law. Cause I won't say the Hebrew or Greek, whatever. Nomo. So, it, it it's not edifying to use. Um, deep theological terms if no one understands what you're saying. The point of preaching or teaching or sharing in a small group is not for people to say, wow, Tim is smart. The point of preaching and teaching is to say, wow, God is great. That's edifying. That's building up the church. We should not be trying to impress each other with our, can I call them spiritual tongues, with, with, by using uh, terminology or, or And I'm not saying don't study theology, don't get me wrong, but recognize that it points to God. If if we are studying theology for ourselves alone, we are as a clanging gong, as a tinkling cymbal. You may have heard the expression, every member ministry, every member a minister, every member ministry. I believe this, and I think that what we've talked about today where God has gifted every member of the body of Christ supports this premise that every believer is to be a minister. Every, mem- every believer is to minister to others according to His gifts. There isn't a place for ride-along, what I'd call ride-along Christians in the church. Now, not to say there aren't times where we are weak and tired and need to be sustained by others within the body. That's that that hand saying to the foot, I got gotcha. you. I'll, I'll help out. But I don't believe that Scripture supports any premise of like God saves a person and they are saying, I'm just not interested in studying the, God's Word. I'm not a reader. I'm not a person who likes to be around other people. You know, just... None of the spiritual disciplines, none of the growth that we would see, none of the interconnectedness within the body. God has not saved someone who then can has the right to turn to their Creator and say, you didn't gift me with anything. I cannot do anything in this battle. I cannot build up anyone else. I cannot strengthen anyone else's faith. In these verses, there is an unavoidable, clear call to action. But along with that call, comes of glorious, informed purpose and confidence. The ministry gifts that God gives will result in a unified, caring church. These gifts will result in a church that will become more mature and wise, perfected in Christ. If you are squandering the gifts that you've been given, if you're wasting the gifts that you've been given and not answering the call that God has placed upon you as His redeemed child, you are hindering the work of the church. Each area where we serve is indispensable to God's purpose. If you are not exercising your gift, there is weakness in the body in that area where God has purposed and designed to place you. My natural tendency is to kind of soft, soften this, this point because I fear it sounding legalistic. But please hear me and know my heart. I call us all to action based on this passage. I call you and I to seek out the gifts that God has given us and to use them for His purpose, to strengthen the faith of other believers, to build up the church of God, the body of Christ. We grow stronger together. We can serve and minister knowing that our interconnected brothers and sisters will be doing the same for us. We unify and care for one another together. But then, let me say, why do things sometimes go wrong in the ministry of the church? For those of you who are engaged in the ministry of this local body in one way or ten ways, why are we sometimes not edified through our ministry? Why do we sometimes feel that we're not being edified by others? Why do we feel like we have no joy in the service? And here's where I want to draw it down to a specific application for us here. How do we properly establish our hearts for ministry? we grow weary in well-doing, as Scripture says, don't we? There's a very real problem in evangelical churches with leadership, elders, pastors, deacons, members alike. The secular term for it is burnout. It connotes the idea of burning fervently for a while, providing heat, light, the useful things that fire brings. But then after a while, there's just no more fuel to burn. There's no more air and the flame goes out. In light of what we just studied in these chapters twelve through fourteen, let me let us consider the problem that faces all of us from time to time burnout. Here are some signs of ministry burnout, and these ring a little bit too true for me. I drew some of this from my personal feelings and I share them with you. Signs of ministry burnout. To grow burdened by ministry responsibilities, to begin resenting ministry responsibilities, to see them as an obligation rather than a joy or a privilege, to become focused on all the things that have to be done and the amount of time required to do them, to start questioning why others are not as committed as I am, to maybe start reducing effort, letting things slide. This is an insidious sign to to say, well, maybe if I don't do that, they'll notice and maybe they'll miss me. Maintaining ministry tasks, being faithful to minister, but being absent from worship or other times of spiritual formation and fellowship and teaching. Allowing your spiritual identity, my spiritual identity, to be based solely on responsibilities, tasks, and position, not on relationship with Christ. I have... I have voiced this myself in times past, like that i view, I view myself as a person who's nice to have around you know I'll make sure that the lights are turned on, doors are locked, unlocked, but that my identity in this body believers is you know if I sinfully only consider my identity in terms of responsibilities, tasks, and position, I forget who I am in Christ, I forget that I'm interconnected to other people within this body. I'm very focused on myself. Here's what the scary thing is. When it fully blooms, burnout can affect your basic beliefs in God, the Gospel, God's Word. I am not exaggerating, folks. It's a real danger. Burnout can make you doubt your own identity as a person and as a child of God. Burnout can make you less merciful, less kind, and more self-centered. So what are we to do? Let me start with recapturing the right motivation for ministry. And, and for, for younger folks, as you start to, to grow in your faith and minister, capture this. You don't need to recapture it. Capture it at the beginning, your motivation for ministry. Why do we minister to each other and to unbelievers? And I've kind of set this up as we don't do it this way because this. We do not minister to we don't exercise our gifts and minister for the sake of sal- saving ourselves because we have already been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. because We've been saved by faith. We minister not to make God loved us, love us but because He has already loved us. 1 John 4:19. 19 In this is love, not that I'm sorry, 4, 10, and 11. And this is the love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sin, the, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We minister not to please others. Boy, this is a dangerous trap, isn't it? We minister not to please others, but to please God. Colossians 1, 9 through 9-10. Verse 10 says, We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We minister not to elevate ourselves, but to build up others. 1 Corinthians 14, we already talked about that. We don't prophesy. you don't speak in tongues. you don't minister. Use your spiritual gift for the building up of yourselves, but to um, edify, to build up the church. We do not minister or serve for personal gain. But instead, the whole paradigm is to be for sacrifice. Paul talks in, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, and I hope you'll look at that um, after you know, offline. But when Paul says, um, I have made myself a servant to all, he talks about not using all the rights that he has, but he has made himself a servant to all that He might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under a law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He, He sums it up by saying, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the Gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. This is our proper motivation for ministry. It's very god-centered not self-centered it's 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 about being we use this term to be theologically informed we are not to minister just purely because you know I'm a dependable person and I signed up to do this and therefore I should be there but instead i preach to please god that should be my motivation i should shepherd because god loved me First, And so I should love others. How do we avoid burnout, though? How do we avoid burnout? It's not as simple as like having the, this, these informed biblical theological points, although that is helpful. How do we avoid burnout? Here are some thoughts. And, and they go right in hand, hand in hand with the, the chapters 12 through 14. Determine the gifts that God has given to you. I mean, don't wrap your head too much around like, um, you know, uh, I... I pray for people and I don't see a gift of prayer. Um, John Piper calls the spiritual gifts um, gifts that strengthen the faith of other believers. And so if you pray for someone, uh, I, don't, I don't think that the exercise of our gifts are merely to, to hit a list or a, a checklist that someone's created, a survey of spiritual gifts, but find the gifts that God has given you and exercise them. Um, doing things that you love to do, Um, helps to keep your spirit rejuvenated, ministering and doing things in in what you love. Elders and leaders help members do ministry by utilizing their strengths and gifts and calling. So first of all, love what you do. Number two, lean on fellow believers, not just in crisis. Don't wait to talk to people over coffee when things are going badly. But as we say these days, doing life together living life together in an interconnected way, encourage each other to ask for help. You do this by um, asking people, what can I pray for? Not just, I have noticed that you are not doing well, therefore how can I pray? But just even when someone looks like they're doing well, encourage them to ask for help. Build that relationship so that before it becomes critical, before it becomes life-threatening, We are encouraging and strengthening each other. Leaders and elders can do much to create an environment where help is easily requested. Our oversight over ministries should include providing assistance, watching for burnout, transitioning people to new roles when needed, uh, supporting in prayer. These are things that we as elders want to grow in. Other things that elders can do. And, and this is an area where I'll, I'll raise my hand and say I need to improve in. Make sure that people understand that they are loved and that they are loved not for what they do, but for who they are in Christ. That we don't see people as just another teacher, another musician, a coffee maker, an usher, but that we see them as interconnected parts of the body, making sure people are loved and making sure people are ministering in the areas where they are well-suited. The the work of an elder includes equipping the saints for the work of the church. And along with this call to action that I give today, there's a commensurate call that elders should counsel and equip and and teach. These last three points are, I believe, most important. To keep our eyes on Christ. To rest in Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12 says, Focusing on Him, focusing on our motivation for ministry and all that emanates from our love for Christ and understanding who He is and what He has done will help us avoid burnout. Linger in God's Word. Be spiritually refreshed. Take Sabbaths from the work. Take care of your bodies through physical exercise and ample rest. Boy, we heard a great message this week on prayer. It's just such a ignored spiritual resource that we have, but pray for perseverance and protection from burnout. Pray for that. Psalm 16.1, preserve me, O God. Pray that God would restore the joy of your ministry. I opened this message by recounting the things the other elders had preached, and I asked, why should we do these things? Why should we obey? And I hope I've answered part of that big question by taking us through these passages in 1 Corinthians. For me, it is comforting and motivating to know that my gifts and your gifts are given by God. And He designed, He composed these gifts, my gifts along with you and your gifts, in this body for a specific purpose. He's even given me direction on how I'm to use these gifts. I'm to use them in love. He's given me a why I'm supposed to use these gifts to build up the church. But in case there's still a little bit of that question open that's unanswered, why obey? We have various reasons that we can obey. We should not obey God to achieve merit in his eyes, to earn God's favor. That's called legalism. We should not obey motivated by fear, where we obey in order to avoid punishment. While there are consequences to breaking God's law, it's still for selfish motives if we merely obey him just to avoid punishment. We can obey because we know that it's wise to obey God if he created all he knows what is best, and therefore, if we know that He wants our good. It's therefore reasonable to obey God. We can also obey because we trust God. We trust that He would not mislead us. If we follow His leading, He will do right for us in return. We can obey because of gratitude. God gave us so much, continues to bless us. He redeemed us at great cost, and we should be willing to serve Him forever. While it may be wise and trusting and grateful to obey God, I submit to you that the greatest reason to obey God, the greatest reason that we have to serve and to minister in the church, is out of love for God. Pastor uh, Dan Doriani gives an excellent modern day example that I want to use to close. If you consider three people who run five days a week, they, they, they jog, they run. You might ask them, why why do you run? This first person, we'll call him Tim. Tim answers, I run because I have high blood pressure. My father has high blood pressure. My brothers have high blood pressure. My grandfather died early of a stroke. I run because I don't want to die early of high blood pressure. Second person, we'll call her Jennifer. You say, why do you run? And She says, I run because when I run, I can eat anything I want and I don't gain weight. Running also makes me tired, so I sleep better at night. Uh, Third person is Matt. Not, Not this Matt, but another Matt. Why do you run, Matt? I run for how it makes me feel. My feet are light. I soar across the ground. The wind is in my face. I can feel my heartbeat. I run because it makes me feel alive. You consider these three people. Tim runs out of fear. What are the consequences if if Tim stops running? Jennifer runs for the benefits of eating and sleeping. But Matt, he runs because running is its own reward. He loves running. Many of us obey God because of fear. Many of us may minister because of the promised reward. But believers should... Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We love God for what He has done, yes. We trust God for what He has promised and how He sustains us. But oh, the joy when we obey God because we love Him for who He is. You remember one thing. Let that be your motivation for ministry. May God continue to show us more of who He is here at Grace and Truth Bible Church so that we might love Him. And consider it all joy to build the church that He has called us together for as a bride for His Son. Let's pray. Father, please take these simple truths. These may be hard to understand examples and my flawed delivery, but Father, please minister to our hearts. There are so many ways and reasons that, that we can minister that are wrong and that do not fulfill the full potential of what You have for us and the joy and the peace and the, the, um, the life that You have for us. I pray that You would help us to be the body that is pictured in these chapters. Even now, that You would con- bind our hearts together. Just, just meet us in our need, Father. May, may this message go far in helping us to accomplish the work that You have in our lives and as a church body. We thank You, Father. We pray this often and we mean it. We thank You for bringing us each from our backgrounds in this time, in this place, into this body. For as long as You have us together until You, you call us to different places or call us home, We pray that we'll be faithful and we thank You for the joy that we can have as members of the body. May we grow in love and unity for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.